Welcome to a very special episode of the Film Comment Podcast, a hopefully... Sorry, what, what happened? Well, we're always... Everyone begins with the very special. <laughs> we're degrading the, the idea of special. Welcome to an extremely <laughs> mediocre... Yes, banal, everyday bog-standard, nothing-new-here-folks yes. edition. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Clinton Crew, And I'm Devika Girish. We're the editors of Film Comment. A few weeks ago, our esteemed colleague, The New Yorker's Richard Brody, tweeted out two simple words, Tar Wars. He was referring, of course, to the swirl of controversy around Tar, one of the year's most talked about films. The movie, directed by Todd Fields and featuring a central performance from Kate Blanchett, tracks the gradual downfall of one Lydia Tarr, the egomaniacal and possibly predatory conductor of the Berlin Philharmonic. Though likely a lock for many end-of-year lists, Tarr has been fairly divisive among critics. So for today's podcast, we took inspiration from Richard Brody's tweet and invited two well-matched gladiators to debate the relative merits and demerits of the movie. On the pro side, we had the valiant Jessica Kiang, and on the con side, the courageous Nathan Lee, with some side sparring from me and Clint, of course. Two critics entered the fray, one critic left. May the best critic win the Tar Wars. We're usually nice people here. We get along, you know, we, we have good civil discussions. Usually, you know, we land somewhere in the middle on all movies. We respect all opinions, not today. Today we have two guests, two writers we love and whose pen we fear uh, because they're always very incisive and we're, we're glad to bring them together in battle. So batting for Tar, we have... Drum roll. Oh, do you... Okay. Yeah, yeah. You, you yes. Step into the arena. <laughs> I'm sorry, Jessica. This is not the New Yorker <laughs> Festival. We don't have a biography to read. You just have to introduce yourself. Yeah, I was just expecting you to, to give at least a half an hour to my prior achievements. Um, Jessica Kiang, I am a writer for Variety for uh, New York Times, Sight and Sound, and for Film Comments sometimes. And I'm very pro-tar, yes. And on the other side of the uh, proverbial volleyball net. This is Nathan Lee. Uh, I'm an assistant professor of film at Holland University, and I've been writing for Film Commons since 2002. It's uh, my 20-year anniversary this year. Wow. So with a long break in the middle, but for a very long time. And I hated Tar. So I am am the anti-Tar voice in the podcast today. And before we get into all things Tar, I do want to mention that Nathan's written a great piece on the new Lars von Trier uh, season of The Kingdom. It's called The Kingdom Exodus. It's on Mubi. The piece will be up on filmcommon.com today and you should check it out. Meaning. Oh, yeah. Sorry. By the time you hear this. (laughs) By the time you hear this, it will be on the website and you should go read it. All right. So... Uh, as I was saying uh, while we were preparing, I, I would like us to start with opening statements. I'm taking this very seriously, as you can tell. And I was thinking, Jessica, you you saw the film a long time ago, and I remember, I remember you tweeting like you had waited for a protagonist like this. Like you were, you felt um, really kind of invigorated by the film. So I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about your first impressions of the film. You know why it struck a chord with you. 
Well, my first impressions of the film are basically still my impressions because that is the only time I have seen it, I have to confess up front. So um, it's not since Venice um, that I saw it. And ordinarily, you know, before um, uh, coming on such an illustrious uh, podcast as this one, I would want to be fully up to speed and have rewatched and, and have all of my ducks in a row. But I do think it's a testament to the power of the film that I didn't feel that was necessary. In this case, I, I feel like... I got so much from that one viewing of it um, and it hasn't really left my mind. And I don't think, uh, I mean, now, now I'm going to prove myself wrong by getting like all of my details wrong about it. Um, but, but certainly, yes. So, so that, that, um, that particular uh, screening is a particularly fond memory for me in, in Venice. Um, I think I went in with probably lower expectations than a lot of people. Um, I'm not I'm not a huge sort of Todd Field adherent. I wasn't somebody who was like, oh, my God, finally, you know, there's there's a weird uh, kind of thing has happened subsequent to Tar where it's been regarded as like the second coming of the Messiah. Um, so, I mean, I went in with this sort of like, oh, oh you know, it's going to be good. It's going to be solid. It's Kate Blanchett. Um, and again, I really wasn't prepared for it um, answering this or scratching this particular itch that, as you mentioned, Devika, I've had for a long time, where it was actually a debate that I had with a friend of mine way back. And I can't remember quite what we were talking about, but I was it, it came it boiled down to the fact that we've never had a female Daniel Plainview. We've never had a female uh, embodiment of that kind of character. And, and we had this really interesting debate with a friend of mine, a, a male friend of mine, I should say. Um, and. Uh, it sort of boiled down to, even though he himself is perfectly great guy and everything, and, and uh, I wouldn't want to impugn his feminist credentials in any way, but it did come down to this idea that um, for portraits of sort of towering ego um, and genius, you know, being being uh, uh, sort of uh, clashed, clashing together in that way, we, that we hadn't seen a woman. And his his point eventually did boil down to, well, you know, women just aren't like that and women just haven't we haven't had the opportunity to be like that and we haven't and we're therefore there aren't movies about women like that because there aren't women like that and that really got my goat because I kind of I mean I, I slightly am a woman like that I think um, I it's like I'm certainly a person who has an ego and I know a lot of women who have egos and who are overweeningly ambitious and who are actually ambitious in a way that has almost nothing to do with their romantic lives or with like making the compromise between, you know, that being a woman and being a career person, those things. Um, and I just hadn't ever seen a film that so completely embodies those debates in a very current way, obviously, which I'm sure we'll get into, um, but in a female character. And so that was one of the things that really enlivened me about it, in addition to all of Tar's other virtues, which for me are manifold. I do think it's a brilliantly written and brilliantly directed piece of work. And obviously I think that Kate Blanchett's performance in it is, is completely, it's sort of structurally key to the film. And actually in a way we could maybe get into later on as well, um, there's something very interesting going on if we're talking about the separation of the art from the artist, uh, which is what the film is about to a great degree, um, when we have a film which in which you cannot separate the art of the film from the artist of Kate Blanchett or the artistry of Todd Field either. So I think there's, there's there, for me, it was just such a strange and uh, surprising concatenation of so many things that hadn't even realized I was looking for and then I found in Tar. Nathan? Yeah, um, I I'll, I have a sort of immediate response to what Jessica just said, and then I'll, I'll sort of declare my opening statement, which is um, I find it really intriguing the idea that 
there's never been a sort of female Daniel Plainview um, that, you know, for better, for whatever else you think about the film, and I think we have disagreements about it's how well directed and written it is, that um, it uniquely foregrounds this kind of high achieving, you know, um, woman. When you were speaking, I, I was thinking, I was like, okay, I'm, so this is Tar Wars. So like, is there actually, and I was thinking of the piano teacher, which I had never thought about in connection with this film. It's quite different. I mean, the Isabel Bear character in that film doesn't have the status, the sort of titanic status that that Leotar has in this film. Um, but I think that's. I mean, I, that's not something I would disagree with. I think it. I think it is true that the movie foregrounds an interesting female character achieving at the highest levels of her career and takes us inside the kind of machinations of that career um, in ways that are. Are interesting. My problem with the film is what they then do with with her status, um, the plot mechanics, and some of the direction. Um, so, I, my opening statement will be about the opening of the film, um, which, um, as some people may know, and I think there's been some controversy about this, it begins with a very long sequence of the credits rolling backwards. So, you, like Gaspar Noé, irreversible style, you begin with you know, the lowest people on the ladder of the, the production credits and, and the, the credits scroll for several minutes. It's quite long. And my immediate thought was, okay, stunt queen. Like, here we go. This movie's already stunted, doing some formal stunting. Like, who does Todd Fields think he is? So I was already a little bit irritated. By the end of the film, I actually thought this is one of the only things I like in retrospect about this film because it forces the viewer, after you see a woman who abuses her power, and her underlings for all the spectators to watch every single person involved in the making of that film ending with the director so start so it, it it at retrospectively i thought okay that was actually not a dumb decision because it, it forced the viewer to, to look at visually what is the labor that goes into making this film um because it goes on and on and on this sort of sequence so then the film um opens with Lydia Tarr famously being um, introduced by Adam Gottnick from The New Yorker, who is the second most irritating writer at that magazine after Anthony Lane. But anyway, he gives this preposterous introduction to Lydia Tarr, right? Harvard-educated, runs the Berlin Symphony, every award. PhD in ethnomusicology. Yeah, and she's done field work in these, you know, all these far-flung places. I mean, it goes on and on and on and on. And I was like, is this a joke? Like, is this trolling the kind of New Yorker audience? Like, it was so over the top, the way this character was presented. Tonally, I didn't know what was going on. because so we began with this for formally strange opening and then this ridiculous sort of opening, and, and I mean, part of it is that I just, I think Adam Gottlieb is such a clown um, and embodies the, the aggrandized mediocrity of the New Yorker, which again, I've read for years um, and enjoyed, but um, I was immediately like, okay, so where do I situate myself in this film? And that's one of the things that I think is interesting about this film is that as it proceeds, you have to question what is the filmmaker's intention here? You know, is is she being satirized? Are we being satirized? Are we being implicated? Is she, you know, like it it throws you off balance a little bit um, from the beginning. So I did think it was an interesting opening. Um, and I will say that it also, the opening scene introduced me to what I will unequivocally say is 
the most astonishing thing about this film, her outfits. I have never seen such good clothing in a movie. It's like the best tailored actor in the history of cinema. I was just like the knitwear, the dress, the dress, the dress shirts. I was dying. So, but I mean, not just and not just her her costuming, but I think also we have to draw attention to her hairstyling, which is basically the entire story of her arc is told through how lanky or greasy her hair is at any one point or how immaculately coiffed it is. It's incredible. I want to hear a little bit more about what Nathan found so um, objectionable about Tara, though. And I would like Nathan to expound on one of his tweets, famously viral tweets about Tar. You know the one I'm talking about. So I had tweeted that Tar is memoria for people who think the New Yorker is super important. Um, and this got, I don't have a lot of Twitter followers. This got like 500 plus likes. This like went bananas. Um, and, you know, it was a joke. I tossed it off after watching the film because she's haunted by certain sounds in the film. She doesn't, you know, she starts to sort of orally hallucinate. And there's a question of her relationship to um, non-Western cultures, which you know, comes back at the end structurally. Um, it's, I mean, it's nothing like Memoria, uh, but it's this kind of, um, yeah, I just <laughs> thought, you know, and and it was a dig at the New Yorker, but the New Yorker, again, I've subscribed for years. I think it's a quite interesting, I mean, I like the magazine, but it, it, my problem with Tar is to me, it's the, it's the, the quintessential movie of which there's, there's many a type, they often play at places like film festivals and the New York Film Festival, which is profoundly middle-brow in its ideology um, and its narrative construction, but has just enough like zestiness, formal zestiness, thematic kind of um, you know intrigue or novelty to make it seem like it's more than it is. Um, and so, in short, I mean to make this short because I want Jessica. I want to hear Jessica's defense. Rebuttal. So, yeah. Um, I found the character. She's taking uh, notes, by the way, listeners. Yeah, yeah, she's she's getting ready with her pen. Keeping I receipts. found the character entirely unbelievable in her choices. I mean, I, I found it. Um, you know, I found the movie what compelling, watchable, but I didn't believe it. I didn't believe a second of it. It felt so phony to me. Um, especially the kind of pivotal moments, um, the, the the dramatic sort of arcs of the film. The, the conclusion I found ridiculous the notorious scene which we'll talk about with when she's humiliating the BIPOC student I was like this is nonsense like I am around gender non-conforming by self-identifying self-identifying BIPOC students all the time this is just phony it's just bad writing I just didn't buy it I do think there's moments in her relationship for instance with her wife that are quite interesting um so it's not like it's entirely unpersuasive, but I found the machinations of her downfall and her um, being trapped in this kind of Me Too, you know, downward spiral, um, really conventional and and unsurprising and and unbelievable. I found it. I didn't find the film credible. Mm. Um, I think. Um, I think there's. You're bringing something up that I kind of agree with, which is that the movie's kind of most least believable when it engages with these con these contemporary issues when it's like an, when it becomes kind of a public about public life and public issues and more for me works much better when it's about her family 
dynamic and as a powerful person in this family world because it's seems to be more seems to know more about that and have a more um realistic perspective i will just say one thing jessica before handing it over to you as the other woman on this podcast <laughs> is um you know i think you are right that there aren't many women characters like these uh, i think that that's a very interesting and something that I found fascinating too, um, it's kind of very slippery, powerful woman figure who really is kind of on the razor edge of likability. I mean, as the film goes, I think she becomes very unlikable, but for a large part of it, you know, you just don't know what to make of her. I think because we don't know many women like that in real life and there's something very um, ungraspable about her uh, for a large part of the film. I will say this, that <laughs> I do think there are films which have portrayed women like these, maybe not in this way, maybe not in a, such a serious way, in such a complex way. But I've said this to so many people I've talked to about with Tar, uh, talked to about Tar with, um, like The Devil Wears Prada, Miranda Priestly is like, to me, a Lydia Tar prototype. If you've seen the movie Late Night uh, with Min uh, Mindy Kaling and Emma Thompson, Emma Thompson is a Lydia Tarr prototype, and actually that movie also deals with her having to confront sexual assault allegations or harassment allegations because she has an affair with um, one of her, uh, you know, subordinates, a writer, one of the writers in her writer's room, and it's it's, and she has this affair with her husband who is sick, and then she has to do a public apology. And of course, these movies are generically very different, but I do think that. Um, you know, I, my reaction was very similar to Nathan's, which, which is that I felt the movie is actually very conventional. It is bringing up tropes that we have seen in cinema and in writing. I mean, a lot, uh, even at the revelation at the end that she's her name, she changed her name. She came from a lower class background. I thought, well, this is Dawn Draper. We, we've seen this. I, I felt that uh, many of these ideas were very familiar but kind of dressed up to seem more complex and mysterious than they ultimately turned out to be because of like a lot of the set dressing with the music world and even the costuming. I mean, there is a lot of uh, technical finesse in this film, but I do feel like uh, ultimately the ideas I have seen before and maybe in different kinds of films, but I think maybe done even better and with a little more empathy and credibility. So that's all I'll say. Okay, that's three attacks. Yeah, I don't know where to begin. So, okay, well, I, <laughs> if we can go back to so maybe what, what Nathan was saying at the beginning. Um, what, what I find so interesting is that, like, Nathan himself saying that, you know, there's the, the, the intro with uh, after this, after this bravura stunt, if you want to call it that, of the credits rolling backwards and, you know, leading up to the, the, the director's name. And then we go into the Adam Gopnik interview. Like, I, I I don't really see what the confusion is there because there was at no point, because as you say, it is so over the top. It is so obviously a grotesque, sycophantic um, display that is being put on. There was at, at no point, like right from that very first scene, was I unaware that I was supposed to distrust Lydia Tarr and that I was supposed to, while being fascinated by her, by, by being fascinated by her self-construction and by how, how many people were actually complicit in the construction of her own myth of genius. 
um, well, I was obviously, I felt, supposed to investigate that and supposed to be put on my, on my, uh, uh, you know, on a high alert. Because, I mean, for me, the amazing thing about that scene is how they got Adam Gopnik to do it. Because, I mean, I don't, I, whether or not, I'm not, I'm not sure I, I, I read him very much, but... Um, he had no idea what was going on. He had no idea who being satirized. <laughs> that that has to be that has to be the only the, the only solution. Either he has a very very high uh, um, uh, uh, high grasp of irony and is willing to make himself ridiculous in that form because he is ridiculous. It's a ridiculous scene, and it, in the way that she responds to it, and 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 this again for me, this was you know I I was the, one of the first people in the world to see this movie finished, and and so we, we didn't have any kind of um, prior knowledge of what was going to happen here, and as a stage setting thing, not just for the film itself, but for what was going to become the Tar Wars. I'm fairly sure that Todd Field and Kate Blanchett knew full well when they were making this movie that it was going to be divisive and it was going to be controversial. So even when you're when for me, like coming fresh into that scene um, with no prior knowledge really of what was going to be going on, uh, it immediately set up. That it is uh, that it is satirizing the New Yorker reading um, uh, kind of world, the, the, the sort of the, the world that we build up around uh, around middle brow celebrity artists, the world that we um, kind of somehow that many of us sort of aspire to be part of, while also wanting to pretend that we're sort of better than that and all of those things. So, so to go straight in on this very long scene of this very long interview, which does not let up for one point, and but that it is also our introduction, I think most importantly to me, it's our introduction to Lydia Tarr as played by Kate Blanchett. And I think there's such a lot of Adam Gopnik in that, like he's talking at her so much, just bigging her up and bigging her up. And it's her, her performance, even in that opening scene, just absolutely blew me away. I was completely there for it because it's in the minute shifts of her body language. It's the little smirks that she gives every now and then. It's the sort of this this absolute assumption that she should be getting these paeans, these homages um, on this stage in front of people. And she's not even, she's not actually even doing the thing that she has a genius for there. She's actually just lapping up all the adoration and all the, yeah, all the plaudits from this man on a stage. So, so to me that that sets up almost everything about that, that we're going to be talking about in the film. And it's set up from most, most importantly for me, it's set up that tone of irony, well, which I think- I have a question. Throughout. Sorry, yes, go ahead. Do, so if, if, it's a sat, if it's a satire of that middle brow kind of faux art world, then what does it say is real art? I, but I don't think it's a satire on her art. I think it's a satire on the cult of celebrity that we build up around genius artists. I mean, I think Jessica's making a good point here, which is that the one of that that what that scene does in a grandiose way is point to the structure of enablers that support Tar throughout the entire film. Right? It's not just that she's a monster, but it's that her her mentors perpetuate these kind of structures of of twisted mentorship and not asking questions. Um, they all benefit from it too. They all benefit they from it, her. right? They there is a her. kind of, you know, I think, you know, it's it's more interesting, slightly in in that systemic kind of structural critique of the enabling of the monster than the actual monster themselves. Um, I was quite fascinated 
by like the hour and a half in which all of her wife, the all, the only thing afforded to her, the character of her wife was giving her side eye at rehearsals. There were like 20 shots of her like giving side eye. And the actress is so great. I was loving the side eye, but it was like- Nina Haas the, is the best part of this movie for me. Great. Yeah. But I think that point is, you know, I'm just going to, you know, I, I think that is an interesting point. I, I know Jessica's burning to follow up. Yeah. No, there's just, there's just one thing. So, I mean, I think it's really key that this film, which is about this genius conductor, does not start with her conducting. It does not start with the thing that she's a genius at, that she's famous for. It starts with her in this, in that, in that scenario instead. You know, something that our, our friend and contributor, Abby Sun, pointed out, which I thought was interesting, is we're all talking about the New Yorker sequence as the opening scene. But the opening scene is actually her on a private jet some unknown person recording, like live streaming her and there being this chat sidebar. I just want to bring it up because everyone's talking about the New Yorker sequence as the opening sequence, the stage setting, but there's actually some stage setting happening before it. And I don't really know what to make of that. I think that really threw me for a loop uh, when I was watching the film. Uh, and of course, that sort of comes back as a theme, the role of social media, the theme of surveillance. Of It also kind of challenges this idea of enablers. When we see the Adam Gopnik scene, we're, you know, we're immediately thinking of enablers or the, all the sycophants. But that scene is someone in her close circle observing her and texting someone else all these people are unknown we assume I assumed it was her assistant Francesca like criticizing Lydia Tarr so it's already establishing that there are people around her who have some you know issues with her uh and it's also establishing social media as sort of central I think to the movie in a way that really personally kind of annoys me because the way it comes back is one of the most ludicrous and to me sort of insulting things in the movie but I don't want to get into that I just want to bring this up that there is this other opening scene so that we can maybe I'm curious to hear what you guys made of that I mean I had literally forgotten that scene so that tells I mean, you something so had I until Abby brought it up and that's the thing but, everyone but I think, but I think yeah. the wider point that I was trying to make there is does still stand that it, the, those the opening you know the obvious thing if you're making a movie set in this quite arcane world of classical music and it's about a genius conductor the kind of obvious way to start that is with her conducting especially when for me anyway and probably Nathan will disagree with this but some of the scenes of her conducting I found amazing I thought they were really incredibly physical scenes and her physical performances and the the way the music is used in it the way the classical music Mahler's fifth especially is used in it um, was really clever so that would have been an, a sort of an easy in I think and an easy way to say that we're actually doing a kind of a Citizen Kane thing here for, for with, with this woman but actually starting it in this in that kind of scrappy way now that I now that I remember it um, and then going into the New Yorker thing again to me is about saying that like this movie actually isn't really about art it is actually about the creation and the self-creation of an artist and of, and one of monstrous ego yeah um I think that question that observation Devika that you brought up I think is really great or that your friend pointed to and it's interesting that we all forgot about that scene and it, it's actually quite crucial to the film um and it leads to I think um the other big scene that people are talking about that I wanted to dig into which is her kind of testing and humiliation and uh, of the um the students um when she's the guest's teacher um but before we get there I want to just raise a, a something that, that Jessica has been talking about and and 
you know, I'm not, a, as, a, as a critic, I'm not a great analyst of acting. It's not my forte. Um, I'm, I'm more, I tend to be more key to formal qualities of film or structural principles than the acting. I'm a great admirer of Kate Blanchett. I think she can be an extraordinary actress. I mean, I, you watched Carol recently and it just devastated me. I did not think her performance in Tar was very good. I thought it was very mannered. It felt very felt very superficial to me and very calculated. Um, it didn't aggressively be, competent it, is the word that came to me when I was watching the film. Aggressively competent and and you know I mean I think again I raised earlier which I'd never thought about until this podcast the the idea of the piano teacher which again is very different but it's moving in similar kinds of worlds. The intensity and ferocity and rage you know, that Hubert manages to channel in that performance amidst this sort of bourgeois European classical music world. To me, that's a kind of great performance, but I don't know how to really break it down. And I think this is something that is often just subjective. People find performances compelling or not. I don't think it's an exact science, but this was something that was interesting to me is I, I she was watchable, but I didn't, think it was a, one of her a really great performance. Um, and that seems to be one of the things people love about this film. It's Kate Blanchett gives the performance of her life. Um, so I I don't have a critique of it, except that it felt to me a little bit mannered. But Jessica, I would love to hear more about like how you, beyond the, the thematic or the structural elements, like what in her performance did you find compelling as a performance? I mean, I think I found her aggressive competence really compelling. Yeah. Um, I, I, and I think like, well, actually when we're, you know, again, I, I keep on going back to, for me, how many ways this film is an example of praxis, how many elements of the film are the film itself. And Kate Blanchett's performance is, is exactly one of those to me. So there is an absolutely uh, a, a real sense of calculation. There is a real manneredness. There's an archness to her almost all the time. But I think that that is the character as well. And I think that that is the character of this film. And the the little, the tiny little sliver, the sort of uncanny valley that exists between the real world that we know and real breathing living human beings and this extremely uh, sort of, I don't know, it's like, it's like, I don't know, it's, it's this sort of like shellacked, horrible facade that she is portraying at all times is exactly where this film lives. And I think where, where the most interesting uh, 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 debates come come from is this is that sliver of doubt that that she isn't she isn't not it's not a naturalistic performance and I don't think it's a very uh, and it's certainly not an empathetic performance and I think that's that's part of the whole brilliance of it for me um, so you know there's a there's a there's no softness to it whatsoever I mean is the easiest thing in the world in, in in performance terms would be to obviously to compare it to Carol, where she plays another older lesbian woman intent on seducing a younger woman. So and and yet these things are so poles apart um, and so completely different in in you know in every single in every single facet, despite the fact that they're ostensibly on those identity levels anyway similar roles. So I think that like that to me is one example of why it's a great Kate Blanchett role because it's very different from previous great Kate Blanchett roles, even if it is sort of on the surface quite similar. So there's. The, the aggressive competence that you're talking about, I think, is also then something that that, the, you know, what, what is what is actual artistic genius? 
except perhaps aggressive competence. I mean, can you really say that there's one conductor or one filmmaker who is, you know, empirically better than another? Is there some way that we can do that? Or are they simply more aggressive in their competence? I have to say, I'm a little bothered by, by I was bothered by the fact that the, that the conductor is referred to as the artist throughout too. The conductor I see is more of a manager or an interpreter rather than an artist. But, uh, and I think that that speaks to your point, Jessica, about the superstructure of celebrity and the, uh, how these, these person, this person becomes the face of the art rather than the actual heart of the art or the creator is, of the art. And she is, she's writing her own composition, right, during, during it. And that composition doesn't sound like it's going to maybe set the world on fire. No. But it's so, yeah. so again, that's sort of the, the difference between the creative, the pure creative um, endeavor that is composing versus the kind of more whatever interpretive uh, creative art that is or lifestyle it's like a life she's an art she has she lives the lifestyle of an artist yeah i mean i think this is this is what you're both clint and jessica what you've just brought up is interesting and i i don't know if i have it's i don't know if i have an answer it is it is actually making me think a little differently about some things um how i read some things in the movie i think for me you know the question of separating the art from the artist, the question of how we deal with geniuses is interesting because I do think that really great transcendent art is more than competence, that there is something ineffable and mysterious in the ability to produce great art. And that's what makes it so hard for us to separate like what an artist, you know, how they behave from their product. And that's kind of why there is that cult uh, of personality that develops around certain artists is because there is something that feels unreachable to those of us who who are moved by that art but cannot produce it. There is something that does feel sort of uh, centrally mysterious. And I think that's why the aggressive competence bit bothered me. And I think, again, it might just be that I'm reading the film a little differently than you are because I do think that your reading is is very interesting and and strikes me as as um quite kind of valid in its own way but for me you know like nathan you're you're bringing up the piano teacher there is something uh, to me a genuine reckoning with like the way in which artists in power uh wield their power would have to also confront the actual aura that emanates from art from art making I don't think this film really does that I don't think that I actually get a sense of you know her I mean it's Kate Blanchett we've seen her in movies we've seen her be seductive we've seen her exude that kind of magnetic pull that I don't think she actually successfully exudes in this movie and I think that the movie, the other thing that kind of bothers me about her performance is that I think the movie tries very hard to contrive this uh, sense of ambiguity. You know, there is, it deliberately sort of uh, makes uncertain a lot of details about her relationships with people, like the sexual assault, even though it's not that ambiguous, but I feel like the movie really withholds certain details. And, but the performance... It, you get the sense that uh, the ambiguity is being contrived instead of sort of just existing, instead of just being, instead of things just being mysterious, being ambiguous, that the film is really trying to contrive a tone, a, a very constructed sort of effect, effect of ambiguity. 
And I felt that in the performance too. I mean, the little, you know, the little mannered things, um, which which kind of fit in with, I guess, someone who lives her life, uh, you know, according to music and is always like programming music and conducting music. But there has to be, you know, for, for an artist like her to be surrounded by enablers and let's not forget a woman, like no woman is the conductor of an orchestra of this, uh, you know, this level in the real world, this stature, for a woman to be in that position and have so many enablers around her, there has to be something. There has to be a whiff of real genius that, you know, waylays you when you when when she's doing all these other awful things. That's what I think. And that's why I feel like her performance isn't quite getting me. But you see, so this is exactly what, what I love about it. Because when was the last time we have these debates? When do we talk about this, this, the, the, the idea of creative genius in this way? And by making her a woman, by making it this incredibly unlikely person, and by putting in that sliver between the, to me, she she plays a repellent character from from the from the from the get go. Um, yet she's put into a world where we're made to understand that this charisma that she exudes works on all the people within the film, but on us, the viewer, I think we are cued very early on to not trust that, to see that that for what it is. So I think that part of the the, dis, the great dismantling that goes on in this film is the very idea that there is genius, that there is such thing as innate genius. And it's what you were saying. I mean, I think that's maybe just a fundamental philosophical disagreement we have, David Kevin, because I'm not sure that there is, you were saying that like there's something transcendent in the ability to produce great art, which suggests that there's something transcendent in the person who can make great art. I think there's something transcendent in great art, but I don't think that it's something that necessarily resides in a personality or in a person. Um, and I think that's that's we have we have become so accustomed to this belief that that genius is only created by people who are geniuses. And that's part of this. This this is exactly what this film dismantles for me in such an interesting way. You're listening to the Film Comment podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. I, I definitely am sympathetic to this as a satire of like a brittle, genius producing industry that is sort of crumbling thanks to social media and new ways of communication and new forms of identity. But I think that there's a part of the movie that is very sympathetic to Lydia Tarr as an artistic genius, even though I think she's much more akin to Charles Foster Kane, like manager and like self or Don Draper, you know, whatever, this self-made business person rather than any kind of artistic genius. There's an interesting sort of question hanging in the air here, I think, amongst all of our takes on this film. Um, and sorry that there's, there's a three against one sort of pile up, but Jessica, but Jessica, you're- Jessica got tricked, by the way. She said, uh, she was told that I was a supporter. Yeah. <laughs> you're pushing back, though, I think on some of our critiques is, is interesting because it's raising a question that I'd like to dig into, which is, um, 
beyond the character of Lydia Tarr and what we think about her, how the film actually presents her, like the mechanics of the filmmaking. Because one of the things this this film obviously does, just as you pointed out from the beginning, is it directly solicits audience is still soliciting the audience, soliciting the viewer in almost a kind of, you know, a very direct, almost Brechtian sort of way in the beginning. And so the question of what you do as a viewer as you navigate this story, like, is your attitude, this is a critique, this is a satire, she's relatable, but damaged, you know, I think it raises that sort of question in an interesting way. I mean, I did really didn't like this movie. I'm going to talk in a minute about two reasons specifically why I didn't. Um, that I thought were fatal flaws and symptomatic flaws. And, and we have to get to the ending also. But when Devika, you were talking about the when we were discussing her performance, the, the way the movie evokes this kind of aura of mystery and kind of the enigmatic, and it's, it has almost a thriller sort of feeling to it. It makes it very watchable, right? And you had pointed out that that it felt sort of, you know, laid on or or, or like it, it didn't cut deep into what the movie was about. That was part of my problem with the film is that it felt at core, again, very conventional, but dressed up in this kind of aura of intrigue or being sort of more trenchant than it actually was. Um, I think the scene with the student is an example of that. I think that scene is a catastrophic failure. I don't think there's any recuperable reading of that, of that scene. Um, I mean, I've read countless takes on that scene. I just think it's trash. But the moment, it's very small, it's very throwaway when I thought, I'm watching this two and a half hour movie. I'm not hate watching it. I don't like it, but I'm compulsively watching it. There was this moment when Lydia's life is kind of starting to fall apart and it's she's starting to real like people are starting to realize that she has this past of a, being a sexual predator and her put upon protege, who of course does not get the position that she thinks she's going to get brings her her breakfast, right? And Lydia and says, oh, I forgot the matcha. And Lydia says, oh, can you, you know, go get the matcha? And Lydia's kind of fritzing and we cut to her with her trainer, like smashing these boxing gloves, like smashing, smashing, smashing. Then we cut back to her in her office and her assistant comes in and she's like, where were you? And she's like, oh, like I just had to work out some feelings. And I'm like, that was the stupidest three shots of a scene I have ever scene in my life like she's upset because she's starting to get busted then we cut to her in the gym working out her feelings and then we cut back to her being like oh i don't need the matcha never mind like i worked it out do you know the scene i'm talking about i was just like at the level of filmmaking i was like yeah that's to me by the whole illusion of the kind of intrigue and the sophisticated filmmaking completely fell apart i thought that is just bad writing bad filmmaking and it really stood out for me as not something that happens across the whole film, but is symptomatic of this deeper problem. And the other place I think it's really apparent, Debbie, you pointed out, is later when she goes to her childhood home on Staten Island or wherever it is, and we find out her name is Linda Tarr, you know. She runs into her, her brother who's like, welcome back. Yeah, it's just so fake. I just thought, you don't need this. You don't need, this is just overkill. I would have actually found her more credible without that background. I, I Somehow I would yeah. have found her more credible if she'd just been a child of wealth or not even a child of wealth, if he had not even gotten a background. Because I don't actually think that you 
this idea that a lot of her constructedness, her artifice, her kind of striving comes from this desire to transcend her class. I think that's kind of a, I think that's like a fake theory. I think that's, I mean, I think that is a movie myth, you know, that's a very beloved movie myth. And I don't know how much it holds true for the actual people in in power in the world, like these kinds of like horrible people in power. But not even that it's realistic. And it's cla- just class in this in that scene is also just reflected as a matter of taste of like aesthetics. Right. The house, the, the siding, the VHS cassette. Right. Everything is sort of the kitsch in the house. And right. He's overcome the kitsch life. Yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm going to confess that that is that is that is genuinely the one scene I don't like in this film. Oh. So I'm I'm going to confess. Actually, I'm I'm coming over. Briefly, briefly <laughs> dark side. I don't like that scene, but it's it's surprising to me how many of my friends who have seen this who are not necessarily film critics all gravitate towards that scene. So while I I completely agree, and to me it is it is way too on the nose for what I think is done quite subtly throughout the rest of the film. Um, uh, in many cases, I think it might have been needed. I don't know um, for 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 that that sort of uh, the schism thing to come through. Maybe I don't know. Um, but yeah, I don't. I didn't like that scene in particular. But I do think it's it's striking how many people have sort of independently singled that out as the scene where they're like suddenly they're like oh my god this movie is amazing because of because she's not really Lydia Tarr she's Linda Tarr or whatever I think it makes it her a little relatable maybe right I think that actually kind of goes against what the rest of the film is doing a little bit Oh sure sure but I think that's why people react respond to it We we crave an answer for why people do horrible things We we crave an answer for why people become powerful and do horrible things and that scene gives you the answer and it's just a much easier view of the world to have and and like the writing like i said the brother's appearance his his one line of diet it's just like it's it's offensive it's <laughs> offensive to it's people not, from Staten it's, Island. It's, or wherever she's from it's offensive to people who are like normal people like who are tra- who, who lydia tar is trying to like leave behind and never remember and never return like the, what it, like it's just it's similar it's this offhand uh, sketching of a world that is that's in order to completely dismiss it as something less than what she has got as she has achieved, whether by you know through her evil machinations or not. And I think the same thing happens in the scene that Nathan is talking about, which is a quick sketch of like Gen Z attitudes toward the world that is totally dismissive of like legitimate concerns of most people today. I so I do have one sort of comment on on that scene, and I'd love to hear uh, Jessica's take on it. Um, so the scene itself, I I also just found insufferable, but um, I I do think that it's not entirely dismissive of the student in that scene because by then you're already sort of a little suspicious of Lydia Tarr. So I do actually agree with a lot of people's readings that that scene is a little more ambivalent and that's kind of maybe when you start to think okay maybe this lady's fucked up right but the movie to me undercuts that sense of sort of murkiness around that scene when later you know this big scandal erupts because some someone like cuts a fake video of that scene and puts it on the internet and that leads to her like 
that is one of the big catalyzing instances in her downfall. And then that seemed to me like it really dismissed this sort of Gen Z concerns. I don't think it's ambiguous about it in the in the opening scene. It's like he's she I, the the idea that Bach should be removed from the canon because he had uh, twenty children is like. On its face, like these, there it's ludicrous. You know, it's made. To, this person is made to look absurd. I know, you know? but I, I agree, and I think it's really poorly written. I, I, I really think that. I mean, I hate that scene, but I just do want to point out that the way it comes back also bothers me a lot because I, it, like, it just makes these the concerns of Gen Z. I mean, the writing itself, I think, is is ridiculous. I think black and brown Gen Z kids are like smarter than being like, I don't want to play a musician who's at 20 kids. But even if we take that as, you know, some sort of, um, I don't know, some, uh, just some sort of like scene where we're, where we're sketching, we're, we're trying to grasp what Lydia, a white woman, a lesbian in this world, you know, what sort of, what her responses are to, to other people in this world, um, I think the way it comes back is what really bothers me. I mean, it's so ridiculous that someone edits some fake video of hers and that's what leads to her downfall. That feels like an insult to Gen Z to me. I want to just point out one thing about that scene that I, I don't hear a lot of people talking about. Um, and then I'm sorry, we have to let poor Jessica weigh in on her thoughts yeah, about yeah. this scene, we do, we do. which is, you know, I agree. It's a, it's a very poorly written scene. Um, it, it really is shooting fish in a barrel the portrayal of the the you know gender queer bipoc student who self identifies in that way and his bouncing nervous knee the whole time it's totally overwrought the note i thought that was really false in that scene was at the end when he walks out and he says you're a fucking bitch i don't know if any student who would you know have complaints about a white professor saying anything and then walk out of the room and say, you're a fucking bitch. Students Who's don't do on that. a scholarship at Juilliard? I no, no. highly oh, doubt that. Not that. I was like, no, that's not how that kid reacted to that. He would have felt injury. He might've felt pissed off. He might've told his friends later, like she's a bitch. But the way he walks out and mutters like, you're a fucking bitch. I found that just so false. I mean, I'm a teacher. Like I teach kids all day long, you know? And I'm like, I mean, of course, I've never been a Lydia Tarr in a seminar room, so maybe it could happen, but. No, and I mean, I've been in classrooms where, you know, black and brown students have raised objections to white professors, the way they speak or their dismissals. But there's a real, I think in that scene, there's a real kind of avoidance of the real power structures at play you know i mean students students like that or in an institution like that are actually encircled by you know systems of authority and power that they they don't have the luxury to disregard so nonchalantly and so i do i do feel like that's a figment of of todd field's imagination and maybe cobbled together from tiktok videos or something i don't know Okay, well, Jessica. Okay, great. Cheers. Thanks for that. Tell us we're wrong. Um, yeah, no, I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. I can't possibly tell anybody that they're wrong about <laughs> reactions to that, which are very genuine and very sincere, of course. And so, and and yes, and I think a lot of what you're saying, again, I'm I'm not I'm not unaware of how ridiculously exaggerated that scene is. One of the things that I have to say that I that the re the reason is that I have to say I particularly love that scene is because I actually remember exactly how it played in that first screening, and I know this is sort of a 
an extra movie thing. Um, it's outside the text of the film. No, but, but I, think I was it's so important for this film. Yeah. Well, so so that that moment when that when that scene happens and she has her horrendous I mean to me again it was like this horrendous exercise of her complete blithe privilege not knowing not understanding for a second not being able to see beyond the horizon of her own ego just how unfair the power balance is in that room and that she would use all of that influence and power that she has to absolutely destroy this guy no matter what they have said to her it that doesn't make any you know what actually the, the way that the scene works to me is again to de demonstrate her the the absolute myop myopia that she has towards that that and the, how how like everything is grist to her mill, and when that played in that first screening in Venice, there was a smattering of applause. There was a smattering of applause and a kind of a ha ha guffaw guffaw because she's saying what we are all thinking, right? Because cancel culture really has gone too far, right? And that was the point, the first point that at which I that I think that was the point at which I realized that we were going to be having these kind of conversations about this film, because there apparently were even in that screening full of, you know, snobby ass film critics like me, there were apparently people who were sort of so had been had had actually been, you know, I don't know, traduced or something by the film to that point where they thought that I'm going to really vocally show my appreciation for what Lydia Tarr has just said, as though as though we haven't been set up from the very beginning to know that this is a downfall story. And so so for me, that that worked that 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 scene as as wildly exaggerated and as like fundamentally real world unbelievable as that scene is, it worked really well to uh, to sort of crystallize uh, those reactions in in the audience, possibly. And then for me, uh, very smugly, probably being like, what the hell are you guys applauding? Do you realize you're just who you've just applauded? And do you realize how how foolish you're going to feel in about half an hour's time? Or or not. I mean, that's I mean, I think it's really interesting bringing in this extra textual stuff. Like maybe they maybe those audience members who laughed at the comeuppance of the, you know, the woke mob kid were with her to the end, you know, and thought she was a martyr. I mean, it's just, it's really, I think- It's really hard for me to believe that they would. People love Daniel Plainview, Plainview <laughs> and people love uh, Tyler Durden. Oh, I just wanted to point out, I'm the only person here also who did not see this with an audience at a, at a film festival. Um, I watched well, it at home. I, I, I saw it with one other person in July, Jessica, even before you, so. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think this question of audience is really interesting yeah. because there's key moments in the film that are about, I mean, it's a film that is in ways we can think are either brilliant or clumsy or awkward. You know, we have a diversity of reactions to it is really addressing the audience. This is a, this is a movie we'll say for better and for worse that isn't just about a self-contained diegetic world. It's, it's, it's speaking to the audience. It's trying to provoke the audience. And again, I, don't, I think we can disagree about how successfully it does that. But within the diegesis of the film, within the film itself, the function of the audience is quite important because of where the film ends up in the end. Um, crucially, you know, we begin with an audience, we, you know, the, the, in, the interview scene, and we end with another, with a kind of reveal. Um, so I, I know we're, you know, we're up, running toward kind of towards the end of the podcast time, but I would love 
to jump into thoughts about this ending, um, which I have a lot. Well, lay them on us. We at least owe Jessica the last word, <laughs> given how given how stacked yeah, well, we are against her. I think it's more complicated by the fact that in the film we know that she's conducted these kind of ethnographic. Um, you know, musical, musicological research, done legitimate research in these other countries. And this kind of chicken comes home to roost, right? The, she, she's this kind of like um, dethroned colonizer, right? Who's then like shipped off to the colonies. But, so that's not what, what bothered me was the, the, the sort of racism that, but the, again, the believability that someone of her stature with all of her credentials that she would be reduced to such a clownish sort of final performance to recuperate her career. Listen, we've all seen plenty of people get canceled. Men canceled by Me Too, powerful people. They go into hiding. They do not leave Berlin. They do not leave Manhattan. They do not leave Los Angeles. They lay quiet. Well, some of them go to Paris. And then they, you know, they come back. It would be so much more believable if she went to Paris just just following up on what Clint said. Totally, yeah. Well, she's she also is rich. Like her money didn't go away. Yeah, and then she's in this shabby hotel. I was like, that bitch would never be in that hotel, ever. No, she would pay for her own nice ass hotel in Bangkok or wherever the hell she is. I will say, so I thought that was totally, just completely unbelievable on a narrative level. I did love the final shot. I did, I love against, by that point, really disliking the movie when it pans to the audience. Like you don't know what musical kind of performance she's doing until then sort of revealed at the end. I thought that was a moment of um, not just humiliating Tar and saying this is what she's been reduced to, but because the the audience was all in these sort of costumes, there was a, there was a it ended in a surreal, no, like I actually found that the final shot quite good, even though I hated the kind of final sequence because it was unexpected and it was didn't seem to be mocking anyone. It seemed to genuinely evoke a kind of surrealism um, that's that's sort of lays dormant in the film. Yeah, a campiness yeah. that I would have loved the film to dig into more. Nathan, so if if Tar the movie were just the opening credits and then that very last shot, you'd have loved it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. If it were, if it were two so. minutes long, backward rolling credits, and then the end of the film. Well, okay, so you. so this this end sequence, um, I love the end. Um, I think the end is fantastic. Um, I I think that the to me it's there is, uh, and it's, it also speaks to what you're saying earlier, Davika, about the use of social media and the fact that this one badly edited video can then bring down somebody. Um, and then the fact that she actually does suffer repercussions. There is absolutely an element of wish fulfillment in her downfall here that does not happen in the real world. And whether or not we're going to decide that that happens to her because she's a woman, as opposed to all the men who have been cancelled who all go to Paris or and then come back briefly for a for a huge, you know, after a brief hiatus. Like the men who aren't actually cancelled, they're just briefly postponed. So, you know, you can debate whether or not that's a gendered thing. But actually, I think that to me, that's that is part Part of where Tar is, you know, it's not the real world. It isn't actually a reflection of how these things happen. It is, to me, a reflection of kind of what I wish would happen to some of those men, mostly who they are men, 
um, who have been in those positions because there is an element and it's I think it's the first time in the film that we actually get a sense that there is there are cracks in her own self-image there are cracks in her in her own ego and she I mean that moment where she is offered one of the women in the in the in the sex in shop the or whatever it is parlor, and, yeah. and, and she goes out and she vomits and then then the final reveal of course of her and i don't i mean i i understand the 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 desire to see this or not the desire i understand the reading that this is an incredibly racist thing that this is her ultimate comeuppance that she could be forced to go out to one of these terrible countries but actually for me for lydia tar herself it is a, a huge climb down it is a huge knock to to her self-image and yet then we have the vomiting scene and then we have the scene of her playing and I think like just right before that that you know the reaction shot what I think is really interesting about that reaction shot of the very final shot of the audience and we see them all in their cosplay stuff whatever it is um is that we're actually led to believe that maybe this is actually a very respectable orchestra that she's playing for because she gives it almost exactly the same intensity that she has given any of the other performances that we've seen. And so that to me is like not quite a redemption arc, but it is a moment where we where for the first time, actually, I think I understand that maybe she does have an actual love for the thing that she is famous for. And I don't think I've felt that entirely before. And maybe this 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 ginormous apparatus of destruction that that she herself has set in motion with her own ego has to have occurred in order for her on, on some level to actually realize that she kind of likes conducting and she's good at it. Because the fact that she's there and she's in this horrible circumstance, horrible to her circumstance, much reduced from where she ever was before. Also, we don't know what happened with her family, what happened with Nina Haas, what happened with her daughter, all of those things we don't know. But so she's in this scenario now, which can be seen as a massive climb down from where, from the pinnacle of fame and, and, uh, and appreciation that she had before. And yet, there, it, it's levels. not actually completely it's not for her she's she's not like in a heap in a gutter sobbing she is actually doing what she's really good at and it may be in you know I don't know if she's recording music for a video game or something I'm not quite sure what what it is that's going on there but whatever it is she's she's giving it an awful lot so so there's there's a real ambivalence to that ending which I think in some way almost goes some way to point to an idea that there is a possibility of potential redemption for some of these people who do these terrible things. I mean, I think ambivalence is the key word that you use because I think that ambivalence is kind of the the uh, the um, mo of the film from the beginning to the end. And I think we talk about this as a set. If you talk, you know, we think of this as a satire or a depiction of a villain or somebody who deserves this comeuppance. But it, but the film is actually kind of ambivalent about it's about, you know, whether or not we're supposed to identify with Lydia Tara, whether or not we're supposed to condemn her. And to me, that's a problem, I think. But And so I think the ambivalence of the ending is does nothing to resolve that or to to really, it seems, and so the, I guess my point here is that that ambivalence comes to just be an end unto itself, which I think to Nathan's earlier point that started the conversation is somewhat of like a middle brow move towards, you know, an art film. Irresolution you know. or something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Irresolution One thing I want to say is that what I really line. find problematic, problematic or troublesome about the <clears throat> ending is not just that her downfall is equated with 
this Asian country. I think, Jessica, you have a point that, the you know, it, it is to her maybe a downfall. But the idea that an Asian country, an Asian audience would just, you know, ignore all the things that in Berlin and in New York, you know, people canceled her for, and there would be not a ripple, not a ripple of dissent, not a ripple of opposition in this new environment that she's, you know, playing in. I do think that it sets up this country and it's, you know, this environment that she ends up in. I also have to say the se- the sequence is so brief that it's also very hard to, uh, I mean, I just feel like it's almost like design as a cop-out because of how brief uh, it is and just composed of a few very loaded moments. But I that bothers me, the idea that she so smoothly could get, you know, some sort of gig in this country where is no where no one's like aware of what she went through there's it, no there are no local composers who are going to do I but, mean, it, like, but it, it is it is like, some sort of gig though it's not she's not going to play for the philharmonic wherever it is in 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 Asia. yeah yeah so she i mean it is it's not just that she's in a different country she's like the and the audience who she's playing for, for are not the white middle brow new yorker readers who she is used to playing for so so on that so i don't think it's i don't think we can necessarily directly equate it just just in terms of the geography of where she ends it is actually it's a, it's a whole different world that like that that sort of scabby little backstage area that she's brought to which feels like it's something very parochial as opposed to these fantastic big you know philharmonic halls that she's used to playing in Jessica, i think you're making a really interesting point that we don't really know why she's she is doing this gig at at the end of the film and and you have sort of read it as you know there's something about her just love of actually doing what she does. And when she takes that stage, she takes it as Lydia Tarr, even though it's this strange and, and it's, it's, it's shot in such a way as we don't actually know what kind of performance she's giving, right? That's part of the ambiguity of the ending. So I want to just connect that. And I think that's interesting to that, that in a, in a movie, which sometimes clumsily gives a motivating factor for behavior, right? Or the storytelling mechanics are too blunt. The ending is sort of ambivalent. Why is she there? What is she recording? What is going on? You know, we don't entirely know. And Clinton, you were talking about the ambivalence about the whole movie. And one thing I find interesting about this film and the fact that, you know, we're having this conversation about it is that and I don't know how much Todd Fields is is in control of this, but this is why I liked that final shot. Is that there's a question I think about the that is connected to the, to the strongly divisive response to this film, which is it's difficult to locate the reality principle of this movie. It's difficult to locate to what extent we're supposed to be taking this as a kind of quasi realist narrative about this woman's downfall or exaggeration or it's you know it's it sometimes plays like a thriller you know the tone the tones of the film are sort of strange and I think why I liked the final shot so much is that it in a movie I didn't like is that it exploded that possibility of like what is the where do we locate the reality principle of this film like where do we as, as an audience how are we sort of situated um, because the readings are conflicted. There's different ways to sort of look at it. Um, there are scenes that are preposterous that you're like, this would never happen in, in reality. So again, I don't know if this is by design. I don't want to give Todd Field that much credit, but I think in the debates we're having, one of them is, is we're all sort of reading the film on a figurative level, right? We're all engaging with its sort of ideology and sort of figurative 
aspects. And I think that makes for an interesting bad film. Well, I mean, but the question is whether, what are they trying to do here? I think they're trying to make us have these exact conversations. But these conversations are actually already happening, you know, because of the real life things that are happening, you know, in this vein, in the vein of what happens to Lydia Tarr. I think one thing I want to, I, I really agree with Nathan, and this is what I was going to say, is that there is something interesting in the film because of how many real-world details it weaves in, right? I mean, the, the fact that it has Adam Gopnik and the New Yorker Festival, the, it has a lot of references to the real music world. And I think there's a conversation between Lydia Tarr and her mentor, and he actually names two composers who have, in I think the last few years, real world composers who've had to step down because of sexual assault allegations. Composers or conductors? Oh, sorry, sorry, conductors. I, I misspoke. So it's on the one hand really, really engaging with these issues as they've played out in the real world. It's weaving in details that that really, I mean, there are people on Twitter who you know, have Googled after watching the movie, uh, you know, thinking that she was a real person. It It really tries to contrive that sense of this being um, almost like, I think Todd Field said in an in an interview that this is, you know, the setting could have been a corporate setting. But then there are aspects that feel so unrealistic. And part of my problem is that the aspects that feel preposterous and unrealistic have to do with like her comeuppance or the things, the things that she is opposed, you know, the things that uh, the people who are ultimately trying to like bring her down or the, you know, the things that ultimately she has like fucked up. Those are the ones that feel preposterous, whereas actually her place in the world, her enablers, you know, who she's talking to, how she's dressing, how she's speaking, all of that feels really realistic. And I think it creates that, like that scene with the BIPOC student. On the one hand, I think it's a really good bait and switch kind of scene because you know, if you agree with it and then later you're like, wait, I, I guess I was like agreeing with a sexual predator. But we don't know. We, and we never find out if she, what she actually right. did. So we don't know if we can call her a sexual yeah. predator with certainty because they never actually say. <laughs> we never know. Yeah, those things are never concrete, but certain things are really concrete. And then you're left kind of in the middle. And it feels to me a little bit like an opportunistic use of these real world issues to craft kind of conventional story of intrigue and and ambiguity as as Nathan was saying. And Jessica, over to you. <laughs> but, but I, I don't I don't I don't know what this what what the other option is. What you're I mean what you're I I I'm, I'm not really sure actually what what the critique of that is. If if it's that it's an ambivalent portrait of somebody who is in an extreme situation, I don't I don't see that that's necessarily a bad thing. I don't know what the perspective of the filmmakers are on this on on their subject matter throughout, and I think that that's by design. But I think it's uh it's not good. That's. <laughs> but I don't understand. Like, so on what level do you not see the perspective of the filmmaker? I mean, I don't know if it's I don't know if Lydia Tarr is is a villain or if she's supposed to be complex. She's a complex person with many who's a great artist and whose great art is valuable in spite of or because of her faults. And I think that that part of the film like that wants to say that part of the film pushes you to, to that or to interpret her that way. 
and there's another part that is that I think I'm more sympathetic to that you that you're describing, which is sort of that the film is a satire of this person, and she's a outright villain, but the film does that in a in, but I'm, I just don't. So I don't know. So what? Which one of these? I mean, I just don't think the I don't I and I think that the film deliberately makes that unclear, and I don't think. I think given the subject, the weightiness of the subject matter and the import of the subject matter, I think that's an ethically suspect decision as a, as a, as a viewer. Then, so to me, that was where I found the film, like I turning, turning me off with through, which is the whole I thing. I think even more so than ethically know. suspect for me, it's like the film is using a lot of these hot button real world ideas, yeah, yeah. but it doesn't have anything to actually say about them. So it's kind of, riding on this idea that we will all be debating these topics after seeing the film but the film itself doesn't have anything much to say about it i mean like who can say what the truth is you know but this is but there's no like rashomon here like there's no we don't actually see the stories ever play out so we don't have any idea what the truth is other than the fact that lydia tar might feel guilty about it but we don't even know if that if her sort of visions of of tick of like telltale hearts or whatever she hears at night and like her sudden dreams if that's a, if the source of those are guilt or that's the thing is that you can you can create a, um, a, an image of yourself you can be incredibly successful in creating that image of yourself especially if you are a person to whom the tag of genius attaches itself um, but at some point at some level the the reality of the fact that that is not who you are is going to tell on you on your inner psychology, and for me, that's that's where the horror movie tones of this come in. This that's where the telltale heart stuff happens. That's is that happening in her head, and it goes back to that thing that her mentor says about the the, the Schopenhauer quote about about people who are very sensitive to sound being more intelligent or or better people or whatever it is that he says. So so it's you know it, it's so much to me about her her the, the this very um artificial world that she has created and that lots of people have been complicit in the creation of of her own of her own genius the myth of her tar on tar the myth of her rat on rat rat on rat art on art um and so you know um, exactly can we separate the art from the tar um but uh so, so it's the cracks in that biodome that she's essentially created around herself. That, to me, is enough of an arc. And I think that there's enough. Yes, it's an. Now I'm thinking about the movie Biodome, which is <laughs> yes. much more pleasant. But this this <laughs> this incredible edifice that she has created and that the world has cre- helped her create is cracking. That's that, and that's all of the arc that the film denotes. I don't think it t- gives you any more than that. But that in itself is already, as you were saying before, is already almost a wish fulfillment scenario. Because one of the things that we, you know, when we're talking about bad men and the bad wish fulfillment. Well, mine, for one thing, I would like for there to be a, a sense that any of the of the of the wrongdoers who have come to light recently actually have a single freaking moment of self-analysis or of self-awareness, a single chink in their armor of self-belief. I'm not entirely sure that has happened for any of them. 
So, so that to me is where where is where Tar goes to the element into the realm. Is it of problematic though that it's a that it's a, a woman in Tar who is the is the subject of this? I don't know. Is it? I know, but that's my point. Like they're just trying to like throw all these things in there to just be like, "Aha, we got you. You can't be. It's not so cut and dry, is it, there, buddy?" Yes, exactly. It, it makes it, it it makes it that much more difficult to talk about these things because she is a woman and because she's a lesbian woman, especially. And actually, one of the things that we didn't get into, which I would have liked to have heard from Nathan, you were talking about earlier on, is a queer perspective and a more a, a queer critique of the film. Um, I don't know if you can speak to that really quickly. I, well, I want to. I mean, I have some closing thoughts. Um, Jessica, the last the last sort of defense you gave of the film, I I actually found really interesting when when you were describing that for you, it's enough of an arc against the objections of everyone in this room has been ganging up on you. This is a movie about and and you know there's been plenty of movies like this, but that's fine. You know, it's it doesn't have to stand as a singular, unprecedented masterpiece about a woman who has composed a particular kind of image of herself that's been enabled by, you know, all of these sort of elite, like bourgeois sort of institutions, um, the crack in that image. Like when we were talking in the beginning, I sort of was joking about my, my favorite thing about this movie is her clothing. I don't think it's an accident that she's wearing the most lusciously tailored clothes in this film. I mean, it's, you know, for me, I was gobsmacked. That's my that's my queer take. Is the, the clothes were fantastic, <laughs> but you also pointed out like her hair gets like you know her hair gets fucked up over the course of the film, and I, I think you haven't convinced me <laughs> to be pro tar, but I think there is a, there. It's a persuasive to me defense of the film that all of the objections that we have about what are this the intentions how do we read this you know is this satirical is it a critique your shift you're pointing toward a different lens through which to do the film which is and this is where i think gender actually becomes interesting that it is about a woman and it's about a woman who's you know projected and cultivated and ferociously defended this kind of image of herself right and it's a movie about it's a movie about spectacle in a way, um, but musical spectacle, which is kind of interesting. And it's for you, it's enough that that image begins to crack and it doesn't have to completely fall apart. But I, I find that an interesting reading because it, it connects what I think is the very seductive visual style of the film. I mean, it's really long. I didn't like it. I was not bored. It's beautiful to look at, you know, the interiors are great. I was like having total bookshelf envy about her Berlin apartment. I mean, you know, I would love to live. I want to be Lydia Tarr, right? Without the like, without the molestation. Of wait, 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 wait. So I think, so I find that, that defense of the film interesting because it connects your enthusiasms to the film, to the aesthetic qualities of the film and the stylistic qualities, which are part of the, which I think can be, you're you're connecting them to what kind of thematization that it mm -hmm. is about this kind of you know it's about how in that opening scene she's not only wearing the perfectly tailored suit but her body language is I mean she's just perfectly in control of the image so I think with the, 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 a much more the, articulate uh, much more articulate defense of the film than I have managed to and you don't even like it so. <laughs> <laughs> my closing statement is that. I would wait. You get a closing. Statement? I'm just saying. I would have loved the movie if it were just like way cashier and way campier and 
you yeah. know, if it was just like all the way. If it, it, it just horror felt... movie, that scene in the basement when she's like a wolf is attacking her or something like that scene was it just like makes if the it just wasn't movie. quite so somber, I think I would have like liked the movie a it lot. It needs more. to be less. It needs to be less Lincoln Center. No shade to the Lincoln Center people, but this is the ultimate, <clears throat> the ultimate movie for like a New York Film Festival centerpiece. I'm sorry, it just is. It was not it centerpiece, less... Nathan. But, okay, it needs to be yeah. less Film Society Lincoln Center and more The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kahn. Yes. That would have been that would have been the movie. Well, every movie needs to be more The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kahn. I feel bad, Jessica. I'm sorry that you had to you should. be this you the should. lone supporter. Yeah. I don't feel bad because the reason we invited Jessica is because we know she can hold her own. I've had so many <laughs> debates with her on podcasts, and she's the most for- formidable debate opponent. So. She is, yes. Oh, thank you. Uh, and you really did, I think, genuinely, you know, I, I still don't like this movie, but I think that <laughs> your arguments are very persuasive. So I'm very glad that we had you on. I dislike this movie and totally for totally different reasons now. <laughs> I'm glad I've I have new a whole new of, range of reasons to dislike this vistas. Of- and I will and I will just say Jessica wrote about the film for sight and sound. Um, so if you're curious to you know, if you if everything she said on this podcast hasn't sated uh, your curiosity <laughs> about what makes this movie apparently good, you should read her <laughs> very good piece. So. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you both, and uh, yeah, we'll talk to you again soon. All right, great. It was great to meet you, Jessica. It was lovely to meet you too. I hope next time we'll be on the same side, and then we can really take these two down. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.